What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 177 hmm. of the Core Consult RX podcast. We are back at it, boys. We got uh, another episode that is going to be ACPE accredited, thanks to our friends over at FreeCE.com. So, for those of you who are already members of FreeCE's port, uh, portal, make sure you go on to their website, FreeCE.com. The link will be in the show notes as well. And you can after you listen and you learn all about these new medications we're going to talk about today, you can go on their website and do the post-activity test. Um, after you score an easy 100 on that, um, it'll give you one hour's worth of continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses. And if you are not a member, there's going to be a discount code for their uh, annual like unlimited membership fee. Um, it's a one-time fee for the, for the year, and uh, there's going to be a discount code in our show notes as well. So make sure you check that out. And for this activity, make sure you use the password APPROVED in all caps. So A-P-P-R-O-V-E-D, all caps, and that will get you into the, the post-activity test. Um, and then you'll get your credit. So... We're pretty excited to do this episode. We've been talking about doing something like this for a while, so we figured this would be a good one for continuing to get credit. Yeah. Um, we're going to basically just cover some of the new drugs that have been FDA-approved yeah. over the last year or so. And these are all novel therapeutic agents. So this wouldn't include biosimilars or new FDA indications and that sort of thing, right? Yep. And I think we actually, for time's sake, just because there's been quite a few meds, yes. um, we left out a lot of the oncology meds and more specialized things, but um, some some more specialized things we're still, we're still going to discuss, but um, these we try to pick the drugs just that will be as applicable to as many people as possible. I feel possible. like we did an episode like this the first couple years, but I don't think we did. We haven't done one in a while, right? Yeah, no, it's been a while. It's good. Yeah. There's always new drugs coming out. Absolutely, I'm and there's excited. Some, there's some good ones in here. I, I agree. I think so too. And some yeah. of these may be, you know, old news to you. Hopefully, yeah. But, I uh, mean, if it's in the last year, you've probably heard of it. But we're going to give you a little more info if you have not. Emphasis on a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> now, and also too, before we get started, I definitely want to thank our friends over at Pearls.com. Um, we just uh, renewed um, a contract with them, and they're going to be another kind of uh, our main sponsor. Um, going forward. So huge thanks to them. They help us kind of keep this going. And um, they actually just dropped, uh, on, well, we're record the time we're recording is we're recording March 31st, but this will be released um, in a few days. They just released a new dyslipidemia treatment guideline today. Mm. Um, it's a whole chart flow um, algorithm that kind of allows you to go through the different treatment options based on the 2018 guidelines. It fits very nicely with our uh, their um, accredited episode on treating dis- or managing dyslipidemia. So definitely go there. The, uh, the email address, I'm sorry, the uh, URL rather, is uh, pearls, P-Y-R-L-S dot com slash core consult RX. Um, you can sign up for a free account and you'll get access to various charts and drug info. Uh, it's basically Lexicomp with a very nice aesthetic to it. Um, and the uh, pharmacist, Eric, that's uh, putting that together is made a ton of improvements it's a really really cool program so make sure you check that out all right where are we starting cole i think we're going to start with maybe so there's going to be a lot of weird pronunciations i feel we'll like we've our had best. a few episodes like that um probably starting with the weirdest drug name of them all i think the brand is brexafem which is fine the generic is ibrexafungerp um <laughs> which sounds like a typo but it's not uh, so what this is, is a single-day oral antifungal, specifically a tri- triterpenoid, triterpenoid mm-hmm. antifungal. 
Um, so what it's used is for uh, uncomplicated vulvovaginal candidiasis in females. Um, unlike fluconazole, which inhibits fungal growth, this kills uh, candida species by inhibiting formation of the fungal cell wall. Um, and it's, it's considered novel because it would be the first in its class that does that. Uh, the way it's dosed is kind of similar as far for, for this indication, kind of like fluconazole, it's a very short course. Um, so it's just four tablets of 150 milligrams each. They take two tablets twice in a day, two in the morning, two at night, and that's it. Uh, and, and that would be the, uh, the, uh, the dose for this. Um, it does have drug, drug interactions like you would expect with antifungals, um, strong CYP3 or 4 inhibitors. Uh, you want to reduce, reduce the dose to 150 milligrams twice a day. Um, and then um, other strong or moderate uh, CYP3 inhibitor inducers um, may have significantly reduced exposure, and, and you should um, avoid the co-treatment with this one. Um, don't use it in pregnancy or lactation, so we do have some special considerations there. Um, there is a concern for, for fetal harm from animal studies, so don't use it in that. Pricey, as you would expect, um, for the four tabs, about $570. Um, not super unreasonable for um, insurance to cover, but um, definitely more expensive than um, fluconazole. Um, generally well-tolerated, adverse effects of abdominal pain, diarrhea, nausea, um, and it covers the majority of the candida species, except for candida cruci, but it does cover all the other ones. Um, so in general, the, the main uh, uh, prohibitive thing would probably be the cost, um, but otherwise it seems like uh, a reasonable thing to use. I, why would you use this instead of fluconazole? I mean, the my initial thought was basically fluconazole treatment failure. Yeah. However, at that point, you would want to make sure that your differential diagnosis was um, correct in the right. first place, because um, it could be the vaginal symptoms could be from you know trick or something like that, um, and, and so you'd want to make sure that it uh, you know it could be resistant um, candida species that's causing it. But um, I think we'll have to see how this how often I I haven't seen anybody actually get started on this um, yet myself. So I think that the coverage is much better uh, potentially as far as you know the the species that it covers because um, it's going to cover glabrata and all that. But I, I don't know how you know, yeah. applicable this is going to be to primary care setting because just because of the cost. And that'll be a trend with these new drugs that we talk about. We're probably going to say, yeah, I don't know how much it's going to be used because of cost and that sort of thing. But, you know, they're new drugs that come out. Eventually they will be cheaper. Um, and I'm sure they will serve a purpose in the um, short term with, um, you know, resistant cases of things and that sort of thing. Yeah. So the next one I think is definitely going to be a solid option despite the cost and hopefully more insurance companies will kind of add this to formulary because it's probably got some of the best data that we've seen um, specifically in weight management pharmacotherapy options because we're kind of limited in that space. We've done a whole episode on those and you know you kind of see that the data is not that impressive when you see how much weight loss you would expect. So the, the new kid on the block is Wagovi, is the brand name. Now, this is actually just a higher dose semaglutide. Um, so just like with uh, like what Victoza did with Sexenda, um, this is Ozempic, um, but a higher dose. And so they, under the brand name, Wagovi. So when it comes to, you know, you know, this is basically 
indicated for weight management specifically. So it doesn't have to be someone that has diabetes. Um, and we've talked about this many times in the past about GLP-1s, but one of the good uh, and, and safety benefits of, of a GLP-1 versus something else, you know, like insulins or whatnot that we use in diabetes is the fact that the hypoglycemia risk is significantly lower because they tend to only release that or cause that insulin release and glucagon suppression when a patient consumes a carbohydrate-rich meal and their blood sugar starts to go up. And so in the case of GLP-1s, you know, in a patient who doesn't have diabetes, you can still use them safely um, because it just won't, you won't get the same glucose lowering effect that you would with someone that has diabetes, but you'll still get the, the decrease in gastric motility and you'll still get the um, decrease in appetite uh, based on suppression of the, in the hypothalamus or I should say activation of those, those neurons. AJ, what's our, what's the term? Pro-opiomelanocortin neurons. AJ's favorite term ever. Um, and so when you uh, increase the firing of those neurons in the hypothalamus, you can also affect appetite and satiety after a meal. So again, it's a little bit uh, higher dosing, and it's indicated specifically for patients who have a BMI of 30 kilograms per meter squared or greater, um, or you can back that down a little bit, and they can be 27 or more uh, for the BMI if they have one or more weight-associated comorbidities such as hypertension or dyslipidemia. And you are going to still need to titrate the same way, and it's takes a lot longer to obviously reach the target dose of 2.4 milligrams than it would the one milligram like you would with Ozempic. But um, it's definitely something you want to kind of follow the titration schedule because uh, serious like GI upset, nausea, vomiting can happen if you go too quickly. So for the first four weeks, you're doing that 0.25 milligrams weekly. Um, it is dose weekly just like the Ozempic would be. And then the next four weeks, you're going up to 0.5 milligrams once weekly. Uh, and then weeks 9 through 12, you're doing 1 milligrams once weekly. And then this is where it starts to increase more than Ozempic. And the next four weeks, you're doing 1.7. And then seven, week 17 and thereafter, you're doing 2.4 milligrams a week. Uh, and obviously, if it's not tolerated, you can go back down um, at any point and sort of readjust them. Because there are going to be patients who need longer at those certain doses to get their GI system acclimated to being on this. And some people can't ever tolerate going up too high. So um, it's going to... I haven't had anybody specifically on the higher dose, you know, the Wagovi itself, but we've definitely used Ozempic kind of off-label for this particular reason. And so it'll be interesting to see how many insurance companies will kind of carry it. And the reason I'm a little bit more um, hopeful for this one as far as it getting on to formularies is because the data is pretty significant. So the STEP trials were the ones that were kind of assessing the efficacy. And to give you examples, the STEP 1 trial was the semaglutide versus placebo, uh, and both groups had lifestyle interventions. So the mean weight loss um, was greater than the semaglutide option or the group, obviously, but they lost um, 15.3 kilograms from baseline compared to 2.6 with placebo. So, and that's a 68-week period. So that's quite a bit of weight loss. And that's kilograms as well. Um, and so the the other no, other one that was done, um, well, there's multiple studies that were done, but another one that we'll talk about is the step three. Um, that only had 611 patients, but um, and basically they they did more uh, intensive lifestyle intervention um, and an initial calorie restricted diet, um, and that's what you know they kind of were looking at 
comparatively with semaglutide, and you see that the same kind of results are echoed. Um, adverse effects, though, the GI and nausea, vomiting are always going to be the bigger, you know, issues with those GLP-1s, unfortunately. So, you know, you have to make sure that we're going going slowly and, and escalating appropriately or even slower if we need to. And then um, thinking about things as far as before getting started. So if they have a history of pancreatitis or they have a uh, family history of medullary thyroid cancer or multiple uh, endocrine neoplasia type 2, um, you cannot use these. Um, gastroparesis would be another reason to, you know, probably hold off on starting something like this, but uh, in pregnancy as well, because we don't have any good data in that group yet. But definitely probably the strongest weight loss data that we've ever seen from a medication. So it'd be, I think this is definitely one to watch. Yeah. Sadly, it's not on a whole lot of formularies, even compared to other um, similar drugs, similar GLP-1s. Yet. Um, yet, yes. Um, Cole's a half-empty kind of guy. I am. And sadly, they do not have a patient assistance program like some others. Uh, they have no, it's from Novo Nordisk, but Novo Nordisk does not um, do it for this one, only for the diabetes medications. They do have a copay card that can be used even if a patient doesn't have insurance to cover $500 of the cost. There's probably a limit on uses on that, but I don't know exactly what it is. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the, the alternative would be to use, uh, which I have seen, is Ozempic off-label. And I'll give you a little um, kind of hint as well. If you're in the 340B space, uh, Ozempic uh, significantly decreased its price for 340B pharmacies, um, so, I mean significantly. And so it's something that if you have a patient who you're trying to kind of titrate the dose up, but you're stuck using Ozempic because it's you know that's the only thing that's somewhat affordable, um, you obviously could do two injections of the Ozempic to kind of increase that dose appropriately. Obviously, that's going to be up to uh, you, your, your clinic and how, what kind of policies you have in place. But, um, I, you know, I, that's one workaround that you could you could kind of entertain. So you think trisepatide's going to, like, take its place? It might not have the indication for weight loss, but it's going to have better weight loss. Yeah, right? I, I think it might. And I think yeah. I, I've heard some rumors, some whispers, if you will, that trisepatide might be uh, approved this year, like by summertime. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Is that all don't, for... hold me, don't hold me to that, but that's what I've heard. Is that all for Wigobi? That's it. All right. So the next one is a pretty hot one. I guess it was, I don't know, seven, eight months ago when it first came out. Um, Adjahelm, Adjacanumab. You've probably heard of it because it was all over the news, very controversial. Um, it is an anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody approved for um, the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. In particular, patients with mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia stage of Alzheimer's disease um, with a few criteria. The criteria are an MMSE, um, mini mental state exam, greater or equal than 21, um, a MOCA, greater than or equal to 17, which is another um, memory test. Uh, also, patients proven to be amyloid positive, they do this through an amyloid PET scan or a lumbar puncture, more, more frequently seen lumbar puncture. Um, also, they have to not be high risk for hemorrhagic adverse effects. So risk factors would be like greater than four microhemorrhages on an MRI, um, areas of superficial siderosis, uh, things like that. Um, and we'll get to why that is. Um, also consider checking for an apolipoprotein E epsilon 4, so an APOE E4 allele, because um, the, the side effects could be worse. Um, so the whole idea is that it's going to reduce amyloid beta plaques, which um, we're all pretty familiar with being um, a, a significant culprit in Alzheimer's disease and what causes the problems. Um, 
I won't get into the whole controversy now, but uh, effectively, effectively, the data wasn't as strong as you might like, and then it was kind of expedited through the FDA approval. So there were a lot of docs um, when it came out who were very hesitant. Not only that, it's really, and this is reflected in the approval too, it's really only intended for patients who are in a very, very early mild stages of Alzheimer's. Um, and so later stages, patients who are more severe, really not indicated for them. And so the, the benefits probably would not outweigh the risks in that instance. And it's up to the patient and the physician whether the benefits outweigh the risks in general. I've definitely heard some neurologists um, not speak kindly of it, but I digress. <laughs> Um, so, uh, as far as side effects go, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, ARIA, uh, are reported in approximately 40% of the patients who were treated with the highest dose of this. Um, the risk is higher in the patients with that APOE4 allele. Uh, it most commonly occurs within the first eight doses. Um, ARIA, man, I can't say that, uh, edema. Uh, has a similar pathology to reversible posterior leukoencephalopathy syndrome, um, which is something that typically resolves over time without uh, complications. But they can also have an ARIA microhemorrhage, um, uh, which would be like microhemorrhages and or superficial siderosis. Um, patients need to be monitored for symptoms of these things by a family member, um, and a brain MRI is required prior to giving the 5th, 7th, and 12th doses. I should mention that it's a, it's an infusion, so this is not a... Sub-Q injection is not a tablet. Uh, this would be an infusion that a patient would have to get, and it is, uh, of course, very expensive. So there were a couple of trials um, that were responsible for its approval, or at least for the data that we have on it. One is the EMERGE trial. Um, uh, long and the short of it is high doses um, had less clinical decline from baseline compared to placebo. So that was kind of as positive as we can get about it. Um, the ENGAGE trial um, uh, the CDR sum of boxes scores were not different between groups, and yeah, no yeah. benefit was seen for most of the secondary outcomes. So this was not a positive trial for it. Um, hey, fifty percent, not bad. One, let's, <laughs> let's approve it. One for two. Yeah, let's go. I think was it two? I think two uh, doctors on the FDA advisory committee resigned after it was yeah. approved, right? Yep. Um, so there's other adverse effects: headache, falls, diarrhea, confusion. Um, 0.6% of patients developed aducanumab antibodies. Um, it was unknown if they were neutralizing. Um, overall, I mean, my my non-professional opinion would be used with caution. Yeah. If, if, if used at all. Yeah, I agree. I but think until we get more data. I think the hemorrhage situation is what most people are concerned about. Yeah. And, I mean, plus the you got to think the cost. I yeah. mean, it's something that there's – there's some now they got that transdermal um the nepazil yeah. so, so it's like there's some other options that have and even those don't have great data right but this which is, they i mean they had the um the other patch i can't recall the drug in it but i mean they have been using a, a patch for memory yeah previously but yes that was the first transdermal denepazil um so yeah i think it's one of those things that uh, uh it, we'll see how it plays out but i'm not super hopeful for this one i hope they have some some better options coming up um, so the next drug we'll talk about is uh, Corindia, so Fernarinone. Um, this is something that is approved. Um, it got approved in January of 2022, um, and it's approved to use in patients with type 2 diabetes um, that have uh, and less severe diabetic kidney disease. So typically thinking, you know, if a patient has um, diabetic kidney disease, 
um, we are going to give them an ACE or ARB. Um, and we also have RSGLT2 inhibitors that have good data with the, uh, in kidney disease as well. So this is another potential option that we can utilize in that patient population. So um, finerenone, is, it's a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. Um, and so think of it as somewhat similar to uh, like an, uh, one of our spironolactones or something like that. Um, and it's there to kind of continue to preserve the kidney function. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that it's, it's an add-on to someone who's at least established um, on an ACER ARB and then in most cases an SGLT2 inhibitor as well. Um, it does have some renal dose adjustments. Um, so an EGFR of greater than 60 or 60 or more, you just do the 20 milligrams once a day like normal. And then the uh, 25, EGFR of 25 to 60 mils per minute, you're going to do drop it to 10 milligrams. And then if it falls below 25 mils per minute, we're not going to be using this. Uh, and then maintenance dose is determined basically by serum potassium. So you measure it four weeks after initiation of therapy, and then you may end up having to adjust based on the potassium level because obviously it has the, a potassium sparing effect. Um, so let's just say if the, if the patient's potassium is 4.8 or less, um, then you know, you're, and you're on 10 milligrams once a day, then you can increase to 20 milligrams once a day. Um, and then if they're already on the 20, you can just continue. If it's greater than 4.8 up to 5.5, then you would want to keep them at a 10 milligram dose. And uh, if they're on 20, you can continue from there. If it's greater than 5.5, you'd want to interrupt therapy um, and then may you know, consider uh, restarting at the 10 milligrams once the serum potassium falls back below 5. Um, and then the like, same thing with, with uh, the 20 milligrams. So potassium you know, accumulation is definitely something that we'd have to worry about. Um, but the, the thought process is basically that it's kind of um, helping to reduce albuminuria um, and also, you know, kind of prolong, like I was saying, the, the kidney, the life of the kidney. So they were looking at things like um, the, the end stage or time to end stage kidney disease and, and all that. And so some of these were not as impressive as like the reduction in albuminuria, um, and again, the cost is going to be an issue because this has been kind of like it's still new. So the whether or not it's actually on um, formularies and whatnot, um, there there is a workaround slightly with some of the patient assistance and like copay assistance cards, things like that. Um, but it definitely does not have the huge amount of data that um, the SGLT2 inhibitors have. So I still feel like a lot of times patients are going to be getting those first um, added onto their ACE or R before finerenone is an option. But if the, you know, if the genital yeast infections or something like that becomes an issue, then maybe this could be a good option. Um, so the, the study to kind of look into if you want more information is the um, Fidelio DKD trial. Um, it had over 5,000 patients, almost 6,000 patients, and um, all patients were to on maximally tolerated dose of an ACE or ARB at baseline. And it went for 2.6 years, and it decreased um, the incidence of, uh, of a 40% or larger decline in EGFR. So, um, and it non-significantly reduced the rates of all-cause mortality, so that wasn't as good, as well as um, reaching end-stage kidney disease. So, the, again, slowing that progression of renal function, um, or slowing the decline of renal function slightly, and then, again, helping with albuminuria, proteinuria um, from, from occurring. So, that's kind of the thought process there. Nice. That's an interesting one. Yeah. 
Uh, so the next one is not uh, actually a novel uh, drug. It, it's um, naloxone, but an injection. So the brand name is uh, Zemhi. So obviously we have other naloxone formulations um, under the brand name Narcan. Um, so this is a uh, pre-filled syringe injection. It's latex-free. Um, it delivers a 5 milligram dose in 0.5 mLs. Um, so just like other naloxone products, who would we want to have this medication? Patients who are at high risk for an opioid overdose, right? So some of those might be uh, if they're receiving or discontinuing treatment for opioid use disorder, um, including medication or behavioral therapies. Uh, patient at risk of decreased tolerance um, because of recent abstinence, including a release from prison or a medically supervised opioid withdrawal. Um, also, patients using other illicit medications that they've gotten off the street, like cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, reason being they may um, be laced with fentanyl. So um, if, if the pills are not, if they're, I, I suppose, counterfeit or if they're, if they're laced with fentanyl, then of course that would result in a um, possible overdose. So them having this would be convenient as well. Um, if they, of course, have a suspected opioid use disorder um, or if they are prescribed opioids by a doctor, but in certain situations may be at higher risk. So if they have greater than 50 morphine milligram equivalents uh, daily prescribed, if they're also using other sedating drugs like benzos, of course, um, any other history of substance use disorder and um, a history of overdose, they would, they would be good uh, to have this as well. Uh, the side effects, if you're using it to reverse the opioid, of course, there could be nausea, there could be vomiting, tachycardia, elevated blood pressure, um, a lot of times the patients are pretty agitated once you um, once you bring them back. Um, so anger or dope sickness uh, is is not uncommon either. Um, and it's good to note that the reversal of the overdose uh, may be temporary. The drug's half-life is pretty short, so antagonism may wane before the opioids are fully out of the body. I, um, I think this is too, if you compare like the, um, the dosing of this, like five milligram dose compared to a lot of the other ones that like the Avizio that we used to have that auto injector was only 0.4 milligrams yeah. per um, 0.4 mLs. So, you know, the, you're getting a higher dose of the naloxone. And I actually had one of my PA students that was an EMT prior to coming to PA school. And he said that they, he's had multiple instances where they revived somebody, left the scene, person went and then basically the, the naloxone ran out, ran out of their system and was eliminated before the opioid was and they overdosed again from without even wow. adding something else to it so this i think is a is a way to combat that especially with obviously the like you said the fentanyl um use accident in the accidental overdoses with fentanyl becoming a much bigger thing yeah so they can literally have a recurrence in their respiratory depression yeah if the naloxone gets pumped out and he said he saw wow. that multiple times That's crazy for the patient he had to go a second call to the same exact house they had just left wow and uh revive the person i'm again. surprised that's not like an automatic bus to the hospital yeah i guess if you have to do I mean, i guess, I guess it's maybe their not decision because they, they're fine after that yeah. i mean essentially as long as you're monitoring for the withdrawal symptoms right like you were talking about but um it said, uh, and I think there was a the, there was a, several studies of, of patients basically reserved, uh, reversed with naloxone by paramedics and then released without transport to the hospital f have found little to no evidence of recurrence of overdose leading to fatality without you know the, the opioid still being in their system. So I think that's what they're basing it off of, of like, hey, if the person refuses to go, you, you don't have to take them. I see. I see. So definitely an interesting one. Yeah. Um, just for time's sake. We won't spend a lot of time on this one in particular, but... So we um, did talk about it recently. Yeah, we, ju we just talked about this one um, on our dry eye episode. Was not That one was not accredited, but 
still, you know, fairly okay. If yeah. you want to go take that, take a listen to that one. Check it out. But uh, the um, Ty- Tyravia is the uh, brand name for Vareniclin nasal spray, utilized for dry eye disease. Sounds counterintuitive, but it does have some okay uh, data with it. So, I will, again, I won't repeat what we talked about in the last episode, but um, check that one out and just be aware that there's a varenicline nasal spray uh, available on the market now for dry eye disease. So, the next thing is the prehebrio injection, which is a hepatitis B vaccine. It's a recombinant vaccine. So, it's another option for, manage, or for giving and uh, vaccinating patients against hepatitis B. Um, it's a novel trivalent um, Hep B vaccine, and it's going to. Uh, it was approved in January of 2022, um, and it's basically um, mammalian uh, cell-derived um, recombinant vaccine that contains two pre-S um, epitopes in addition to the S antigen. Um, and so, compared with conventional hepatitis B vaccines. Um, it's you know the vaccine's more immunogenic, especially in older patients. Um, however, as far as like how this is going to kind of fit into scheduling um, or AC, AC, ACIP recommendations or something along those lines, um, it's not quite obvious because yes, you can get a little bit more immunogenicity out of it, especially in our older population. But the adverse effects tend to be um, you know a little bit more frequently observed um, compared to the other uh, three dose Hep B vaccine series. Um, and, you know, especially with the, the other uh, version that's available, the two-dose series, this is a three-dose uh, vaccine series as well. So it, there's some concern there that people will end up just wanting to use the, um, with, I'm drawing a blank on the name, Hypsilava. Uh, this is the um, other two-dose Hypsilava, right? Is that right, AJ? That sounds right. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. It's close enough. You guys know what I'm talking well, about. Well, I couldn't remember the name of the Rivastigmine patch earlier, by the way. That's what I was forgetting. Rivastigmine patch. Well, and, and, I, and when you said that, I was like, I was thinking there was an R or something, but then I'm like, I'm not even going to try because I'm going to butcher new, it. almost said new pro, but that is not it. That's something different. Heplosav. 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 What did I say? Heplosava. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not <laughs> even close. I don't know. I think I was, I was using a Slavic accent. I think it was a dessert of some sort. Listen, how dare you guys? Baklava. Yeah. Balaclava. No, it's something different. Okay, you know what? I'm not podcasting with you guys anymore. Um, and here's the name of it on the uh, next slide that I had made for myself as a reminder so I wouldn't forget. I forgot that I made that slide. Sometimes I'm, I'm kind of dumb, guys. Sorry. Um, Heplisav. He- 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 how do you say it, AJ? Heplisav. Heplisav. I don't like that. Um, that one is that zero in one month um, dosing schedule um, versus the uh, you know the other options that are available are one zero in six months, and so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, especially since you have um, more adverse effects with this one. Um, it'll be I think kind of select patients that are utilizing this. Yeah. Um, the next one is I think we've talked about it a while ago. Uh, maybe if we were doing a heart failure refresher. Yeah. Um, it was a little over a year ago that it was approved, January 2021, but this is Vercuvo Verisigwat. Um, it's a guanolate cyclase inhibitor, and it's used for um, heart failure, specifically HEF-REF, reduced ejection fraction. Uh, the way it works is uh, cyclic uh, guanosine monophosphate activity is increased, which potentiates the salutary pulmonary artery, um, promoting vasodilating effects of nitric oxide. Uh, there was uh, a kind of a big trial that resulted in its approval um, that had okay evidence, I suppose. Um, they did see statistical significance with their primary composite endpoint uh, that included cardiovascular death, 
um, heart failure hospitalization split between first hospitalization and then total hospitalization and then death from any cause. So the primary endpoint was um, uh, statistically significant, but it was driven by the two hospitalization outcomes. So uh, we didn't get any good mortality data. So the cardiovascular death and the death from any cause were not statistically significant when they separated those out. Um, so definitely not a game changer in any way. I haven't seen it used. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure it has much of a place, um, but possibly. Yeah, I, I tend to think of it as like, Another one of those like Ivabradine yeah. or something, you know, where you're getting maybe if the patient's, you know, on the already kind of standard um, long, you know, longevity yeah. medications that we think about, the beta bloggers, the ACR, Arnie's, um, maybe spironolactone, mm-hmm. and then you start having exacerbations, hospitalization, that's when this mm-hmm. might be a good add-on to keep yeah. in mind the hospital, but yeah. um, definitely not going to be replacing any of the first-line agents, unfortunately. So the other one that we'll mention, we're not going to go as much in depth with this because we're actually going to have uh, an HIV um, specialist on in probably the next three or four weeks um, to talk more about this, but we'll at least mention it. Um, so Cabinuva is a combination of cabotegravir and ropivirine. It's an extended release injectable medication. So it's a, an injectable medication for HIV that you can do either monthly or every two month um, injection schedules. And uh, definitely going to be a very good uh, kind of option for patients who you know are tired of having to take a medication every single day um, to maintain their you know their their viral viral suppression. Um, so they have to do a oral lead-in period of around one month. So basically, just 20 days or more. Um, you should complete that prior to initiation of cabotegravir and ropivirine injection, the combo. Um, and then on the final day of the oral lead-in, then you can switch over um, to the injection. And uh, you're going to do for the monthly injection dosing. You're basically going to uh, get 600 milligrams of cabotegravir, 900 milligrams of ropivirine, and um, that's going to be the one injection that's going to last the full month. Um, and then you just keep doing that uh, once a month. And there's also the every two month injection dosing, which for the initiation you do um, the first injection, and the second injection is administered. Um, Basically, uh, two months or the uh, right after the. I'm sorry. the The first initiation injection should be given on the last day of the lead in. So you're giving uh, once monthly for two doses, and then you can go to the the bi monthly um, schedule. So at that point, you can kind of continue that. But the first two injections are done month to month, back to back months, and then you separate it out from there. Um, and one thing I thought was kind of interesting about this that actually got brought up um, at this uh, training thing I did for Epclusa for Hep C, um, one of the infectious disease docs, because we were talking about Hep C, Hep B co-infections, and uh, one of the infectious disease docs brought up a good point um, because if you a lot of times you'll have patients that have HIV um, and then they're also uh, you know co-infected with hepatitis B, the but historically the overlap in therapy has been there where you know tenofovir alafenamide for example can be used to treat hepatitis b and keep it suppressed whether it's for a period of time or you know for an extended period of time and that was also usually a big major backbone of a lot of our hiv therapies well now that patients are switching from that over to this um cabinuva you could get a flare-up of their hep B if all of a sudden you just take away the tenofovir component. So if you have patients that are co-infected like that, um, that needs to be obviously considered and making sure that uh, if the patient is uh, does have certain you know risk factors and whatnot, you are screening for hep B um, when you switch them to make sure that you're not going to cause a flare of hep B. 
So he's, he was saying he was like very concerned about that because he had already seen one patient have experienced that. Oh, interesting. So um, something I, I wasn't really thinking along those lines, but since he brought it up, I thought that was a really good point. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty important drug. I mean, especially with how important uh, adherence is with HIV. Absolutely. Very important. So yeah, we'll get more into that when yeah. we have that guy on. Um, so the next one is pretty interesting as well, uh, maybe not as well known, but uh, it's called Efkiza, um, Evanacumab, dash DGNB, but Evanacumab. Um, so what it is, is a, it's an anti-lipid agent, um, kind of a unique mechanism of action. Um, it is a monoclonal antibody, but it inhibits angiopoietin-like protein 3, uh, abbreviated ANGDPTL3. I don't think there's any good way to say that. Um, it's approved for homozygous, specifically homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. It's in an IV infusion that's given every four weeks, um, which is kind of inconvenient as far as IV infusions go, but given every four weeks. Uh, it doesn't ha really have any dose adjustments with uh, renal impairment, but I would say use caution uh, in severe impairment hadn't really been studied. Um, so the study that got it more or less approved is the ELLIPSE trial, the ELLIPSE HOFH uh, phase three trial. Small study with 65 patients who had homozygous uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, they all had stable lipid-lowering therapy, so they were receiving a statin, azetamibe, and a PCSK9. So this would be like if a patient was still not seeing enough lipid-lowering from also being on a PCSK9, which most patients uh, do unless they have this familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, so they either got the IV um, evanacumab or placebo every four weeks, uh, the baseline LDL was 255 on therapy. despite these therapies. It's just absolutely crazy. Mm -hmm. um, at week 24, so they did a six-week uh, uh, study, uh, the percent change from baseline six and LDL. Uh, Six-month study, yeah. Sorry. Uh, the percent change in baseline of LDL was a 47% reduction from the infusion group and then a 1.9% reduction in placebo. Statistically significant. Obviously, pretty good. Pretty solid. So as far as a milligram per deciliter decrease um, – it was 132, uh, I believe, was the uh, absolute difference, which is pretty significant. But at least a 50% reduction, which is, I mean, fantastic after already being on all of those uh, medications. Adverse events was pretty similar between the two groups. Um, nothing of note, I would say. Um, they, they did mention, just to throw this out there, they did mention the two serious adverse events. There was a, a eurosepsis case and a suicide attempt, which I don't think that they're necessarily Links. able to draw those, right. but th they did note that in the author's kind of you know comments so right it's good just to, to throw that out there but as far as i know i mean this is kind of the only option we have post pcsk9 right that you can think of yeah the the new uh inject the new we'll get into one injection we'll get yeah, yeah we'll get, get into to, a but... different one for heterozygous um i don't know that yeah. it matters too much this one is specifically Homo, indicated for homozygous. for homozygous but yeah yeah the very infrequently seen is why the patient uh Population in the study is very small. Yeah, sixty-five. It's hard to enroll patients to very you know, small, but very small study. It's yeah. crazy that on all that therapy, their LDL was still that high. Crazy. Um, so the just to kind of mention a couple other things real quick, um, just for time's sake, there is a couple new uh, ADHD you know formulations that have been available now. Um, there's the one in particular that we'll mention is the combination of dexmethylphenidate and surdexmethylphenidate capsules. So it's a combination of those two things. So you have um, basically 70% of the, of the 
total concentration is uh, made up of the um, sir dexamethylphenidate, which is just a prodrug of um, dexamethylphenidate, and then the other 30% is the pure um, dexamethylphenidate, which is the D enantiomer of methylphenidate. So think of it as like focalin with an, ex an extended release kind of thing, which is already kind of extended release. So the, the point of it is basically the to, to last as long as possible, um, and so you get a little bit more um, of, a, of a prolonged um, effect from the dose so that you're not having to take multiple doses, hopefully, in, in theory. Uh, and so the onset of action is usually within one hour and, and typically thought to last around 13 hours. Uh, but it's approved for uh, uh, ADHD, and um, you know, it's got a few... Uh, titrations, you know, kind of recommendations. So they want you to initially start off with where you're using the 39.2 milligrams of the Surdex methylphenidate and then 7.8 milligrams of the dexmethylphenidate. And you do that for one week and then you can increase um, to the 52.3 slash 10.4 um, with a maximum dose uh, kind of sitting around um, and at that same, at least the labeled max dose is there. Um, and then it says a dose uh, reduction or discontinuation may... Um, be needed for paradoxical aggravation of symptoms uh, if that does occur. Uh, and then if you have a patient who has been on mental affinity for a while, it may be a good um, trial to basically discontinue uh, other mental affinity products and then try this one. Um, still have to use the initial titration schedule um, and you're not substituting like on a milligram per milligram basis. So you still would want to start with the lower dose and work your way up just because it is going to last longer. That's probably the the one that you'll see utilized more often. There's been a couple other things. There was a transdermal formulation um, available as well of a, of a um, dextroamphetamine, uh, but this is the one that's probably the got the most unique difference from what's already available. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so the next one, I don't fully understand, I, I suppose, but the it's um, this is going to be for an antipsychotic for uh, bipolar one and schizophrenia. It's a combination pill called Labalvi. Uh, it's got a lanzapine in it, which of course is not new, but it uh, is combined with um, samodorphan. Mm -hmm. um, samodorphan is an opioid antagonist, and then of course it's combined with a lanzapine, a second gen atypical antipsychotic. Um, reason being, not entirely sure. The I don't know if you can shed some light, but it's yeah. used for bipolar one and schizophrenia. The samodorphan can um, help with the weight gain associated with olanzapine. I don't know if that's the primary reason it's in there. So basically, the thought process is a lot of the like comparative studies have kind of have shown that olanzapine tends to actually be more efficacious. And I think a lot of the, the studies that I'm, I'm thinking of that had the comparative were with schizophrenia specifically. So olanzapine does seem to be a very um, potent and efficacious uh, second gen antipsychotic versus the others versus some of the others um, but it's the metabolic you know syndrome side effects that become such an issue the, the dyslipidemia the the glucose intolerance the weight gain um, it makes it a, you know one of those drugs that we a lot of times we shy away from, especially if they have comorbid issues with mm -hmm. cardiovascular disease or whatnot. So the thought process is we can still utilize the olanzapine and the samendorphin is there to combat the side effects of that so that we can basically utilize this better agent, um, at least in theory. I, I don't know that this one has been compared to, I haven't seen anything where it's been compared directly to other agents mm -hmm. without any other active, uh, you know, 
in, ingredient other than you know just the standard right. therapies. But um, it, in theory, it sounds like I like a the idea. That option, yeah, I like it now. Now that I understand, that's kind of what I thought. But I didn't know if there was something else to it. So that's good. I, I like that, and it blocks the mu opioid receptors, which it's how it's going to kind of um, help with the um, decreased weight gain. But for patients who use opioids, um, you have to be use caution, and they have some instructions. I won't go into all of it, but effectively de- delay the initiation of the drug for a minimum of seven days after the last use of a short-acting opioid, 14 days after the last use of a long-acting opioid, and they give some more specifics as well. It can be used uh, adjunct to uh, lithium or Depakote. They have some dose adjustments there as well. Um, but uh, generally, I mean, it, it sounds like it's just olanzapine plus um, this opioid receptor, which not a bad idea. Yeah. I think that's a little innovative. Yeah, for sure. I'd be uh, ought to uh, contact our buddy uh, Patrick Casey if he's seen this come through at all. And they still, I mean, it, you know, the drug together is still going to have the side effects associated with metabolic issues, yeah. increased triglyc- triglycerides, weight gain, all that stuff. It's definitely going to fix it completely. glucose, right. So hopefully it would just be a little less so um, versus plain olanzapine. So another one that's kind of uh, definitely going to be, I would imagine, utilized and incorporated into um, new guidelines coming probably in the next six months or so is uh, the Tisbire injections. It's a monoclonal antibody used for asthma. Um, and so this is a new class of, of medication that we have available now. It's a thymic stromal lympho, uh, lymphoprotein, um, or poetin rather. I'm sorry, can't pronounce words again. And uh, this is something that... You know, when we think about our standard, uh, you know, in, inhaled corticosteroids, our LABAs, maybe the LAMAs added in as well. Um, you know, once it comes down to adding, you know, some of these more, uh, these monoclonal antibodies or um, interleukin inhibitors and whatnot, it, it kind of comes down to does the patient have an elevated eosinophil count? Um, do they have, um, you know, other risk factors? Are they on oral corticosteroids? Are they, um, do they have a positive skin prick test? Um, things like that. So that's how we've in the past kind of differentiated between, you know, using some of these other biologics uh, or like Dupixent or um, Zola or something like that. This is an option that is basically a subcutaneous every four week treatment that can be added on to patients who are already kind of on standard therapy, um, but it doesn't have a like minimum baseline level of blood eosinophils um, and some of those other markers that we're looking for. And so you can kind of add this on um, almost like a uh, potential option to, instead of like Spiriva added on, you know, the llama added on is a, is another option. This can be added on in place that seems to be pretty um you know, fairly effective. Um, it was studied in patients that had an uh, elevated eosinophil count as well as a uh, you know a normal eosinophil count. And the Navigator um, study was a was the big one, um, and it basically reduced um, asthma exacerbations. And when you added it to their standard therapy, um, you know, it's, the cost probably will be a little prohibitive, um, especially at first. But um, it's you know the thought process is you're going to get a little bit of. Uh, little bit of benefit um, by adding this one on um, as, as far as cutting down on those exacerbations, hopefully hospitalizations and, you know, increasing quality of life over time. But uh, you know, we also got the uh, the change from baseline and pre- pre-bronchodilator FEV1 um, was greater in, uh, in the treatment group thing compared to placebo. Um, really not really need adverse effects, though, that were, you know, something that stand out. They, wasn't that bad as far as, uh, you know, patients tolerating it. Um, so could be another good add-on therapy, especially if they're already on standard therapy and you've done all the right, you know, switching and escalating dosing and whatnot, and it's, they're still having symptoms. 
Um, there's also uh, a couple other studies happening right now. Um, there's like the extension study, um, which is evaluating the safety and tolerability of um, Tisvir in, in adults and adolescents with severe uncontrolled asthma. Um, I'm sorry, not the. Uh, it's an extension study of an original study, so it's called the destination trial, not the extension trial. I'm sorry. Um, and then there's also the source trial um, that is looking at the um, patients that are taking oral corticosteroids um, daily, and so hopefully reducing the need for those. So kind of like a dupixent type of situation. Interesting. Yeah. So Interesting. another class. Yes. Uh, the next one we have, which we already referenced previously, is going to be used for uh, lipid lowering. It's called Lecvio, I suppose. Um, you don't usually see a Q, a V followed by a Q. I like it. It's unusual. Um, Inclisiran. So this is an injection. Um, we mentioned that this might be the other option versus the Fkiza in, uh, infusion. This one's a little different, and you'll see why um, when I talk a little bit about the studies. But as far as how it works, uh, it lowers lipids by um, a small interfering ribonucleic acid uh, agent. So it's an siRNA agent, but that's what it's doing to, to be an anti anti um, anti-lipemic to reduce lipids um so the way who this would be used in is not homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia this would be heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia um, and also it does have an approval for secondary prevention of cardiovascular events uh, and you'll see why um but as far as in the studies um it wasn't necessarily used in patients who um were having a PCSK9, who were t currently using a PCSK9, it was just maximally tolerated statins. Um, the way the dose is done uh, is you get an initial 284 milligram as a single injection, and then you get it three months later, but then the maintenance interval is every six months. So they kind of advertise themselves as being the twice a year injection, uh, but this does have to be injected by a healthcare provider. So they would have to go, even though it's not an infusion, they would have to go in to get this sub-Q injection. Um, those are kind of the, the main things with the uh, injection and the frequency. Um, so who might could get this approved? Maybe a patient who had allergic responses to um, both praluent and Repatha. Uh, they might be able to get this approved. Or if they, for whatever reason, had difficulty with the pin injector themselves due to arthritis or weakness of the hands, which I think is interesting that that's pointed out because they could probably go in and have their healthcare provider inject those too if... if um, if they were having those issues, but, but I think I will say that this one, you can specifically bill for the injection, uh, and, and insurance companies will reimburse, um, the, is like a, as a procedure, as a procedure. Yeah. Kind of um, it's, I forget the actual code that they use, but you can actually, if, if once a, um, a company is, or a, a clinic is registered to do this, or they have infusion clinics that you can go and actually get it injected as well. Nice. Um, and so it just kind of depends on how it's set up. There's a, there's a few different ways of, uh, going about it but um yeah they, there's a way of billing for it so it does make more sense to bring them that doesn't matter you, at least you're getting paid for the, the right. time whereas if it, you probably wouldn't get reimbursed i would imagine for a pcsk9 inhibitor right that in makes sense. most cases as far as its data the trials are the orion trials 9 10 and 11 um and that's how they got their indication for secondary prevention of cardiovascular events i think it was orion 10 and orion 11 were both with patients who had active cardiovascular disease or were also at high risk, though they aren't making the recommendation towards patients who are just at high risk for primary prevention yet. Um, 
as far as the reduction the patients got, they were only on maximally tolerated statins, like I said, no PCSK9s, but about a 50% reduction in patients who were already maxed on a statin. So that's pretty solid. Um, I think probably similar to what the PCSK9s get. Um, so yeah, anyways, I don't know if a patient on a PCSK9 could get this. I won't, say, I won't even say possibly because it hasn't been studied. But um, yeah, so at this point, I think if Kiza is the only one we've seen with patients who already are on that, and then we'll add on an additional one. And and I think the thought process is eventually going to be that this is a much better for like option secondary to a secondary to a statin, better than a zetamod because you need mm-hmm. a lot better um, lipid lowering ability. And I think the other thing they're trying to utilize is those patients who are at, like at extreme risk. This for secondary prevention. So like the ACE guidelines that have a LDL goal of, like down to fifty five. Mm-hmm. Um, that's you know, much more achievable or realistically achievable with this versus Zetamide or something added on. So I think that's going to be their like kind of target demographic. Yeah. That was a pretty big, that they got that indication Mm -hmm. for secondary prevention. That's probably a pretty big deal for them. Yeah. And, and there, it is a whole process of like ordering the drug and like getting it set up to be injected. So um, I actually talked to um, one of the, uh, the reps for it and she was going to give me some information. It's it's very interesting. It'd be, you know, interesting to see how it plays out, but there's some, uh, some lipid specialists um, around the area that are very excited about it. Hmm. Um, so we're getting close to time, uh, but we'll, uh, one thing I do want to mention that's uh, just because we got a couple others to get through, but um, I'll mention briefly, um, there is another uh, insomnia treatment option available. Um, most of us have all seen like Belsomera um, and those uh, Orexin um, inhibitors that are receptor, Orexin receptor antagonists um, that have been approved, but we have a new one now. So we have um, Dairy Dorexant has been approved and it is in the same, you know, same kind of concept as far as the, the others in this class. Um, and the kind of the thing to, the way to think about this one is it does tend to have the, um, shorter half-life. And so one of the concerns with like Belsamra and, and, um, others is that the half-life is pretty long. And so you have to worry a lot about, you know, patient having residual symptoms the next day, grogginess and all that kind of stuff. And so um, this one would probably be a good option to kind of make sure that it's out of their system, you know, kind of moving forward um, in the morning so that they're not having uh, issues at work or, you know, fogginess, so to speak, the next day. Uh, It's not going to, it hasn't been compared to like directly to one of our like benzodiazepine receptor antagonists um, or, you know, when we think of like our hypnotics, um, ambient or anything like that. Um, those are obviously still first line, but this could be, um, a a acceptable first line agent as well. And it's really something that, uh, you know, if we're thinking along the lines of isolated sleep onset insomnia versus sleep maintenance, um, or mixed insomnia, this is where, uh, this medic, that, that group of patients is where this medication can really be beneficial because, um, it is going to stay in their system, you know, for a while. So it's, if it's difficulty sleeping, through the night. Um, so if after 30 minutes of being awake in the middle of the night, you can't go really back to sleep, um, this is going to, uh, definitely, uh, help kind of settle every, settle the patient back down again and help them get back to sleep and maintain sleep. Uh, but you know, we still can use our, uh, doxepin or our Zolpidem or Esipiclone, any of those, but this is another option that we have available to us. Yeah. I'm all for new sleep options. Cause I just still don't love any of the ones that we have as far from a safety profile, but yeah, sometimes you got to do them. Got it. 
Uh, so the next few that we'll talk about will all be for atopic dermatitis. So there's been a few that have been approved um, in the last year or so. Uh, the first uh, that we'll talk about was from September 2021. Uh, it's a Janus kinase inhibitor, a JAK inhibitor. Um, it's a cream. It's um, Bruxolitinib Obsolera, Obsolera cream. Um, so it's for short-term uh, treatment of mild to moderate atopic dermatitis. Patients have to be immunocompetent and older than 12 years old to use it. Um, the studies that used it uh, and that it was approved for were pretty short, usually about eight weeks at a time uh, for the time period, so we don't really have any long-term follow-up data. Uh, the side effects that we've seen are pretty mild, burning and itching at the application site, but it does have a box warning for some serious infections, uh, tuberculosis, fungal, viral, bacterial, um, and also potentially increased risk of lymphomas. Most of that data comes from the oral JAK inhibitors uh, like Zelljans, um, but yeah, we've gotten a, a few options for atopic dermatitis, and that is the cream option. And and I think actually I messed you up on that call because it's I think the box warning only applies currently to the oral I option. So, so this I, one does I, not yeah, have yeah, that. I, I messed you up, and that's totally my fault. I got you. But um, but there's still something that they have to kind of monitor for um, long term, and you know. It's it's an option that's you know if you're going to use a genus kinase inhibitor, um, I think this would be probably a better option than some of the oral agents because of that, less that risk of systemic uh, infection risk. Um, but uh, burning and pruritus is the we're commonly seeing those still. Um, there's also uh, speaking of atopic dermatitis, there's also a, no, a new sub Q injection available that got approved in December 2021. Um, it's an interleukin 13 antagonist um, called Adbury. Adbury. Ad, gosh, I'm butchering these words today, man. <laughs> AJ, I need you to. They fire. are really. I think they're running out of easy to pronounce brand names because usually the brand name is pretty reasonable, right? But Trilog to add a, in the map. to add a D before a B, it's yeah. just begging for a mess. cruel. Up. And then yeah. there we go. Right on, right on the podcast. Cruel and unusual. So if you guys are like, man, these guys sound like idiots today. I'm sorry. Um, you're not wrong. But uh, the, this was studied as monotherapy um, as well as in combination with mid-potency corticosteroids. And specifically, they used mimetazone furate 0.1%. Um, one thing that uh, it was effective as far as, you know, reducing treatment and, and whatnot compared to the placebo. But um, one thing that's interesting is um, you saw cases of conjunctivitis um, was two or threefold more common in patients receiving um, Adbury, Adbury, I still can't do it, um, compared to those receiving placebo. So that's kind of an interesting thing to um, kind of keep an eye on and see how it uh, plays out because um, that's you know something that they mentioned a, a few times and like even like an up-to-date and things like that where they were talking about the um, kind of their interpretation of the studies and, and they, they brought the conjunctivitis piece up as well because that could be a problem. Yeah, that could be. Uh, the last atopic dermatitis, one that is the most recent on the block, just a couple months ago, um, is Sabinco abrocitinib. Um, it's another oral JAK inhibitor like Zeljans approved for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Um, and they actually put it head-to-head -head with one of the pretty common medications for atopic dermatitis, um, Depixent. Uh, they compared the 100 milligram abrocitinib ver uh, versus 200 milligrams versus Depixent versus placebo. Um, and uh, the easy 75 response, which is like a response they used to, to kind of gauge the severity of the atopic dermatitis, um, uh, was a response was observed um, at week 12 in 70%, 59%, 58%, and 27% of the participants respectively. So that 100 milligram Zabinko dose um, did seem to be higher than uh, the rest of them. So that's positive for them. Which is kind of weird. 
I, like the versus low. the 200, I don't really get it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, probably something going on there that might be worth looking back into. And, and that's where that box warning comes into play. Yes. So they're going to – and this was a, this was approved um, for RA a while back. Uh, so I think that's where the, the box warnings were added in, I think, in 2021. Yeah. And so it carried over, obviously, with this. But it would be interesting to see how these um, jack inhibitors are going to play out because I feel like a lot of people are staying away from yeah. Them and uh, for different rheumatoid conditions and whatnot. Right. I will say that I see it a lot for atomic dermatitis. Do you? I do. For um, this particular? No, jack inhibitors oh. in general. Depixent is probably the most common one that I see. Um, but I don't know how. But, I, I don't work in that space as much, so I don't know how this is going to shake that up with these new ones. But, um, yeah. But, yeah, the box warning, serious infections, major cardiovascular events like heart attack and stroke, possible cancer, thrombosis, uh, death. Yeah. So... Yeah, and I always think I, the patients the one I see the most too. That, but that that one being an interleukin four, I, I think that one does the. I'm not worried as much about the infection as too, and I yeah, see. Yeah. I think that that's still because I, I. And again, this is all kind of not you know new as far as the labeled indications for uh, atopic. But I'm wondering because I feel like with a lot of the rheumatoid conditions, they're um, they look like they're not as effective as like the TNF alphas mm-hmm. or the non TNF alpha biologics versus those. It, yeah. it just seems like they keep getting pushed down the pecking order so kind of curious to see how they play out but we'll see so i know that was rapid fire guys that was Um, a lot of info wasn't it and and i hope we didn't butcher some of those things too bad or confuse you with our going through it too fast but uh we're only on a time crunch so um i think we uh i'll put a a list of the medications in the show notes as well so um for those of you listening that uh you know, if you want to get a list of them and look up more information, I'll have those listed out uh, in the show notes. So, um, and when I say show notes, just for those of you who are not familiar with that term, it's when whatever podcast platform you're listening on, whether it's Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, if you go and click on the episode and then like there's all that information below it, if you scroll through that, that's got all of the information when I say show notes. Um, so I've got a couple emails from that and some, you know, I think where are the show notes? Yeah. Yeah. Or what is the password or things like that, which is it's totally cool. I appreciate you guys checking it out. So I, I recognize that not everyone is avid, uh, podcast listeners. So I appreciate the, for those of you who are new to this space that, you know, giving us a chance to checking it out, especially for getting your continuing ed. Um, yeah. So thank you guys so much. Huge thank you to free CE once again. Um, it's been awesome partnering with them and being able to offer, uh, you know, accredited uh, episodes so that you can hopefully get uh, your your renewal, uh, your license renewal with just listening to podcasts on the way to work. Um, so thank you to them. Uh, make sure you check out, uh, again, their whole library of information that they have available on their website. Um, I, Cole and I both use them ourselves and, and then definitely utilize some of their uh, other content that's not created by us. And, um, you know, it's some really good stuff on there. So check that out. Um, thank you to Pearls. And uh, make sure you check them out as well, pearls.com slash coreconsultrx. And uh, if you guys have any questions for us specifically, uh, show notes will be in um, – or the emails will be in the show notes. You can reach us on any of the social media platforms. Um, if you want to send us a text directly, uh, 415-943-6116. And uh, make sure you check out the Patreon, too. Um, so it's www.patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. Uh, we have, like, traditional-style lectures and downloadable PowerPoint slides and all that. That's more uh, your speed. Um, it gives you a little bit more of a, a traditional look at the information. And you can download the PowerPoint slides and rip them off if you want to. So it's, uh, it's like, three bucks a month. You can steal all, my, all of our content and then 
then discontinue the service. Go for it. Um, it is what it is. But I hope, hope it's helpful for you. Um, but thanks so much for those of you who have been uh, signing up on there and supporting us that way. That's, that's helped out a lot as well. We will just definitely keep trying to improve and make stuff better for you and keep producing content that's useful. So thanks for everything. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Have a great one.